Hey everyone, our greatest desire is that this podcast would make you more excited about studying the Bible. So we encourage all to come to their own conclusions based on a personal study of God's word regarding the subjects being discussed. The views expressed by the guests on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our sponsors or who they represent. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review or share it with your friends. Now, here's the show. Job is saying, even if I had done these things you accuse me of, you could still show me some pity. I mean, I'm suffering here. Indeed, that's exactly what he's asking for. And incredibly, he then tells them that if you don't show me pity, you people are all going to be judged for this. And you're listening to Why They Did That, a show that explores the motivations of biblical characters and how their choices can guide yours. Back on the show today is Dr. Carl Wilcox. He's got his PhD in medievalist studies, which basically means he's an expert in medieval history, literature, and philosophy. But his real love is the book of Job. Now, this may seem insignificant at first glance, but let me ask you, have you ever wondered why Job treats his second set of daughters better than his first? Maybe you didn't even notice that in the first place, but for Carl Wilcox, he's been grappling with this very question ever since a young lady asked him while he was lecturing in a university in Oslo. We pick up the book of Job in the prologue, the very beginning of the book in the first few verses. We're introduced to Job and then his 10 children, seven sons and three daughters. He has a big family. Now the narrator points out that the seven sons have their own birthday parties of which the daughters are invited to, but it seems as though the daughters don't have birthday parties of their own. Now, if you've read the book of Job before, you'll know that all 10 of Job's children die at the hand of Satan. But in the epilogue at the end of the book, God blesses Job with another 10 children. But this time, there is a focus on the daughters and how Job treats them differently. It's seemingly a minute point, but Wilcox believes that that's where the Bible really comes to life. And one of the problems with the way uh, people read the Bible today is is that we tend to read it as mere information. Right. Because, of course, that's the time or age we live in. Mm -hmm. We're bombarded with information that virtually has no meaning, no purpose. It just comes at us as a form of constant distraction. And we have learned, I believe, to read the Bible as purely informational. Mm -hmm. And what this means, in effect, is that we read the Bible to merely confirm what we already know or think we know Mm -hmm. or to confirm our own prejudices or biases. Sometimes we need to confirm the truth, but we rarely learn anything new from the Bible because when we encounter details in the text Mm -hmm. that don't immediately fit into our preconceived truths, we simply dismiss them as filler, as, as padding, and move on. But of course, in doing that, we miss out 
on all kinds of possibilities that we need to understand if the Bible's to be relevant to our actual lives. So essentially what we do is we relegate this information to, you know, it, yeah. it becomes Bible trivia. Indeed, it becomes the the material for for Bible games. Uh-huh. What were the names of Job's three daughters in chapter 42? And the wiseacre in the room can raise his hand and rattle them off. And then the question, of course, that we don't ask is, so what? Yeah, why in the world is that important? And, 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 and in reducing the Bible to information content, we basically condemn ourselves to religious lives where there's whole tracks of personal experience that the Bible never speaks to, mm. at least as we understand it, because we've neglected whole books of the Bible, which don't immediately confirm what our sort of pet themes are. In fact, if we read the whole Bible with great interest, expecting every detail to have significance, I think we would discover that the Bible speaks to the smallest details, the most mundane aspects of our lives, which, of course, most of our lives consist of. Which tells us that there's no part of Scripture that we can afford to just gloss over. It's not like the author had to meet a certain word count before he could submit the book of Job. Mm. And at the end of the book, his new daughters even have their names mentioned, whereas we never knew the names of the first set. Yeah. This, this isn't just a copy and paste of the prologue as it's so often read. No, in fact, we weren't told the names of his first set of sons either. That's true. All that first set of children remain nameless, mm. but in uh, the cameo and the epilogue, we're given the names of these three daughters. Notably, we're not given the names of the seven sons. Still, yeah. Yeah, so clearly the narrator is emphasizing daughters... Uh, to an extent, uh, he's prioritizing them over the sons. In fact, we can read the names, and he called the name of the first Jemima, the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapik. These are real, real women, mm. real daughters. They have names, and that's a significant contrast to the prologue, mm-hmm. where, of course, neither the sons or daughters are named, but the sons have priority because their birthdays are mentioned. Wait, it, it mentions their birthdays? Yes. We learn in the first chapter of Job, verse 4, that Job's sons, and I'm quoting here, would go and feast in their houses, each one on his appointed day. It's important to understand that that phrase, appointed day, or his day, has a Hebrew equivalent, and it actually means birthday. How do I know that? Well, if you go to chapter 3 of Job, verse 1, we find that uh, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. His birth is the same Hebrew phrase as we find in 1.4, where it says each of the sons feasted on his appointed day. So we find equivalency there. It's pretty obvious then from chapter 3, verse 1, that each of these sons had a feast on his birthday. These were birthday feasts, birthday parties. And of course, the daughters, while invited to the son's birthday parties, have no birthday parties of their own. Put yourself in the shoes or the skins, as it were, of the daughters. Put yourself in their place. 
as a child. Mm. And your brothers have birthdays, but you never have your own birthday. Now, this is normal for them. They've never known anything else. That doesn't mean that they wouldn't question it. No, they're human. Right. They feel left out. And of course, at some point, they're told, well, that's just the way it is. Uh And of course, this is exactly the problem in how a patriarchal society can treat women. They can become less than fully human and the sons get everything. So Job, at some point, we can infer this, I think, based upon his how he how dramatically he changes in his treatment of do, of his daughters at some point he is sensitive to that why else would the narrator mention the fact that the daughters are invited but they never have any birthday parties of their own now someone will say well there's no evidence in the epilogue that they had birthday parties after job suffered there doesn't need to be they got something far greater got inheritance they got inheritances so I we know can which one easily, I prefer. yeah we can easily <laughs> assume they had birthdays as well it's a dramatic it's not just cosmetic It's a dramatic change in treatment. But what I find interesting is that Job actually had to become sensitive enough to even recollect that his daughters didn't have birthdays. Now we get to the epilogue, and suddenly the status of women has risen considerably. Right, and not only do they receive names, but they receive inheritances like their brothers. Indeed. And that, of course, is just plain radical. Right. Within the world of the text, Uh before they were invited to their brother's birthday parties, Uh now they're given the same inheritances that their seven brothers get. That is culturally revolutionary. You could argue perhaps that Job now values his children more, having lost the first set of children. I don't personally find that argument persuasive. I don't think that uh, that's how parenting works. So something's changed. Something's changed for Job where he is now. Essentially, he's treating his second set of daughters better than he treated his first. Indeed, he is. All the evidence points in that direction. If you look at chapter 42, verse 15, the narrator goes on to say that in all the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job. Mm -hmm. Now, this, this is arguably the case, but the beauty is probably not as important as the simple fact that their beauty is now appreciated. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, there are some commentators who believe that there is an element of sexism here, that maybe Job only gave these girls inheritances because they were so attractive. I think that's ludicrous because then the, the inference has to be drawn that Job's first set of daughters were ugly. either ugly yeah. or lamentably plain. Uh-huh. And I and I doubt that's the case. I think what we're learning here is that Job is, or the narrator in this case, is identifying femininity as valuable because femininity is expressed through Mm -hmm. feminine beauty, Mm -hmm. and to appreciate that beauty is to appreciate the feminine. Now, this may not be very feministic, according to feminist theory, Mm -hmm. but it makes perfect sense to me that uh, one way you can valorize women is to appreciate their femininity. Is it really feminism? That is, does feminism really valorize femininity when it tells women that in order to be of value, they have to be more like men? 
I think it's interesting that oftentimes in modern media, the role of the patriarch, the, the man of the house, is comedic now. Oh, yeah. He, he's a joke. Mm. But I think that the book of Job is trying to tell us that you don't need to devalue man in order to elevate woman. Yes, the book of Job corrects that because it shows us a patriarch who takes responsibility for assuring that his daughters receive what they deserve. And then it goes on to say in verse 15 of chapter 42, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Something has changed. So we've mentioned that Job practically loses everything, oh, except his wife. Yeah. But his suffering really peaks in chapter 19. Yeah, it's a powerful chapter. And when I first began to ask the question, why did Job change in his treatment of his own daughters? I assumed that his suffering was the catalyst for that change. Mm -hmm. But then I realized I needed to find that in the text. Before he suffers, we see benevolent exclusion. The daughters are invited, but they're not really included. Right. They're just observers. How does Job come to see that? Well, I think it's in chapter 19. And uh, in chapter 19 of Job, Job, in, in this particular speech, narrates what it was like for him after Satan had destroyed his family and taken everything that he had. Because remember, the culture assumes that Job has been punished by God. At this point in history, there's no evidence in the book that they really knew anything about Satan. It had been forgotten, lost. Of course, Satan wants us to think that he doesn't exist, mm. that God is responsible for all of his ill will towards humanity. Uh -huh. So for, as far as the culture is concerned, everything bad that's happened to Job has come from God, and therefore Job must deserve it. Right. Job, of course, can think of nothing that he's done. Therefore, he can't think of anything to repent of. So they've reached this impasse. But the surrounding... You know, the people in his community, his social circle, they have decided that he is so incredibly wicked that they dare not even associate with him, apart from, of course, verbally uh -huh. trying to sort, sort him out. So verse 14 of chapter 19, this is what Job is telling us about his suffering. You know, we always try to reduce Job's suffering to boils. Now, boils are nasty. Sure. But I've heard far too many sermons where you would think that that's his only suffering uh -huh. is the fact he lost his estate and he has a bad case of skin disease. But the text tells us that his real sorrows are multi, they're, they're far greater. Right. And they're enumerated here. He has removed my brothers far from me mm. and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. That's verse 13. That's verse 13. In other words, my entire family system has abandoned me. They are, they, we're not on speaking terms. Mm -hmm. Verse 14, my relatives have failed. Now, I wonder if anyone can identify with that. Mm. You know, a person can go through a bad spot in life. They can make serious mistakes. They can mess up their life. And more often than not, one's relatives reject you on that basis alone. So this is, this is a common human experience, although it's sort of supercharged in this case. And when has he needed these relatives more than now? Yeah. When do you need your family more than when you've lost all your children? 
And of course, when do you need your wife? But of course, we learn that even his wife is not speaking to him. He's complete. He's a pariah. He's completely isolated. He has these three friends who make speeches at him. Mm. But in no respect are they willing to comfort him, show any compassion or pity. Mm-hmm. Because to do so in their minds would be to endorse his sin. Right, right. And at this point in 19, he's making a simple human appeal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Look at um, 14 again, verse 14 of chapter 19. My relatives have failed and my close friends have forgotten me. Now it gets even worse. In verse 15, those who dwell in my house, my maidservants, Mm. they count me as a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. Now, he's their employer. Yeah. And even in verse 16, this is this is shocking behavior. I call my servant. This is 16. But he gives no answer. You can imagine Job sitting there with all his boils, scratching with a piece of pottery, and he asks the servant to get him a drink of water, and the servant pretends that he isn't there. <sighs> now, apart from gross insubordination, you have to ask yourself the question, and I think we can infer this, who gave the servant these orders to not attend to Job? Hmm. Well, the other partner in this uh, household rulership is the wife. So there is this very dramatic possibility that his own wife has ordered the servants to not attend to him. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. Hmm. Job is now begging his servant to give him what he needs, and the servant doesn't even acknowledge that he exists. Then verse 17, my breath is offensive to my wife. Now that's an interesting figurative expression. Is this hinting also at maybe um, marital intimacy? Yes, it's, it's not, I think, literal in the sense that he needed a mouthwash. It's simply... <laughs> You know, you you don't get a sense of, you know, intimacy at all. In other words, she's keeping her distance. Right. She's staying far enough away that she cannot in any way have uh, any close association with him. And then it gets worse. Verse 17, and I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Now, we don't know exactly who these children are. Mm -hmm. But it's possible that Job had an extended family. He may have had a concubine. We don't know. Right. But this clearly doesn't refer to the children who are dead. Yeah. And it could even refer to servants in the house Uh who he didn't actually father, but who are considered part of his household. Verse 18, even young children despise me. And of course, this suggests that the children in his household the children that he's responsible for sustaining, the children who are children of his servants, they despise Job, who was the greatest man of the East. After the break, we'll see that Job's trials have a purpose. And that purpose might just change your understanding of suffering forever. Don't go anywhere. It's going to get deep. I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That.
Did you know that over 40 million Americans suffer from anxiety disorders? Yet only 35% or so of them even receive treatment. The Nedley Depression and Anxiety Recovery Program, located in Weimar, California, is a 10-day intensive program offering the most comprehensive treatment for depression and anxiety available in the United States. You'll learn how to manage your stress, overcome addictions, deal with loss, trauma, and suffering, and how making a few lifestyle changes could give you a whole new lease on life. You can find out more and check when the next program starts at depressionthewayout.com. Job's personal suffering has reached new heights. He's shunned by those he loves. His friends are telling him God is punishing his sins. His wife won't come near him. His servants disrespect him. Their children mock him. It's an unbelievable turn of events in the life of Job. But he's not alone in his suffering, is he? You see, this book, this story of Job's suffering, isn't in the Bible just so that we can know about Job's life. It's there so that we can know about our own life too. The Holy Spirit really wants us to imagine what this would be like if I were Job and everybody that I know. You know, you think of your own mother, your own wife, your own children, uh, the people that you depend on. If every single human being in, in your social network has, has turned against you, treats you as if you're an abhorrent being, what would happen to your psyche? Mm. What would happen to your emotions? I have never had this experience. Yeah, me neither. It's really incredibly painful. Uh, verse 19, all my close friends abhor me. I read that. And then those whom I love have turned against me. He loves them. They hate him. This is as close as a human being can get to the experience of Christ's sufferings, sharing in Christ's sufferings. Christ loves those who hate him. But Job is not Christ. Mm. He is not <laughs> Jesus. He is blameless. He is a man who is closer to God than arguably any other man in Scripture, and yet he cannot bear up, humanly speaking, again, uh, under this incredible burden of, of social isolation. These, these people, I think we can assume from, you know, verse 13 through to, to 19, that these people that are, you know, within his house, within his social circle, it's essentially their their theology, their understanding of God that is causing them to shun Job. Yeah, Dean, that's an excellent point because they feel virtuous in their treatment of Job. And this is the danger of a false understanding of God. Mm. You can hold to it sincerely. You can believe it's the truth. But you would think that at some point, the friend's and the family and the servants would ask this simple question, what if we're wrong? Mm. What if Job really is sinless? But they never consider that. But they never do. So I think we can understand that when they rejected Job like this, 
even though he still loved them and needed them. They did it partly because they were simply not willing to acknowledge that they could be wrong. And that's not very human. I think this is one of the the gripes that the world has with Christianity today, is that there's this uh, indifference to suffering. Yeah, and one of the most annoying things about many Christians is that anytime they're confronted with a serious example of human misery, they fall back on some shallow platitude mm. rather, or, or some mantra right. rather than simply acknowledging, yes, in the sinful world, there is pain. And I don't have any easy pat answers. Yeah, we come out with, you know, these phrases, you know, oh, it'll all work out, everything will be fine, God won't give you more than you can bear. But yes. essentially, none of that matters to Job. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for something more human. Yeah, we can believe the scriptural promise that God will not, you know, he'll provide a way of escape uh-huh. or he won't test us beyond what we can bear. But I think if you quoted that to Job in verse 19, I think he might get a little bit angry because he's not bearing up very well. Mm-hmm. He really does not like it, and he's willing to be honest about that. Verse 21 is Job confronting them with this question, if you were in my place, wouldn't you want pity as well? Mm. But of course, they never are in Job's place, or so they assume. And uh, he's simply asking them, why are you treating me? And I think he might have rephrased this question at the end of the book. Why are you treating me as Satan does? Mm. Satan treats people that way because he knows that if he can get you to sin and then he can get you to the point where you really believe that you're a hopeless case, then he's got you for eternity. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing that drives sinners to desperation quicker than rejection by everybody they love. God says that Job is blameless. But his friends, his family, they think that he's done terrible things and deserves what's happening to him. Yeah. But Job is saying, even if I had done these things you accuse me of, Mm. you could still show me some pity. I mean, I'm suffering here. Indeed, that's exactly what he's asking for. And incredibly, he then tells them that if you don't show me pity, you people are all going to be judged for this. You'll be lost. Mm. And that's prophetic that you may know there is a judgment. In other words, a failure to show compassion for a person, not not even, even if they have sinned and are suffering as a result of their sin, a failure to show compassion for that person, according to Job in verse 19, and we see this at the end of the book, this is verse 29 of chapter 19. He says to all of these people who have ostracized him he says be afraid of the sword for yourselves right for wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there's a judgment in other words your failure to show pity on me now it will bring it will bring wrath upon you it is unethical it is not christian so we can flip this around and ask ourselves this simple question do we think of god's judgment solely in terms of sins, as in the classical seven deadly sins, Uh you know, or do we think of the possibility that we may face judgment and lose eternal life because of the sin of callousness? Hmm. You know, I'm not minimizing, you know, the fact that you can be lost forever because you've committed adultery. Sure. 
But Job is telling us at the end of chapter 19 that you can also be lost forever because you refuse to show pity to the adulterer. Is it possible that when someone commits what we would consider a socially unacceptable sin, Uh are we willing to take the risk to show them compassion? Because it's too easy to say, well, that's socially unacceptable, so I can't show you compassion or I'll be guilty of endorsing the sin, justify ourselves, and then be lost because we would not show pity. This is a really serious ethical message that can only come out of personal suffering. Right. Because arguably, Job might have been just as pitiless had he been on the other side of the fence. Mm. But because he has suffered, he now has a new experience in terms of what suffering, in a sense, should inspire in other people. And we see this, of course, in the life of Christ. Jesus reached out to people that were so sinful that all the other believers in the community had given up on them. Mm. Jesus especially drew near to those persons. Yeah. This, And even though we know that theoretically, in practice, it's our fallen instinct to withdraw ourselves mm. from the person who's messed up morally. Where it, actually, in fact, they need at that point pity and compassion. I'll never forget uh, in a church, uh, there was a, a woman who had committed adultery mm. And as an elder, we, I was in a meeting where we talked about what the results should be. Right. Now, the handbook, the church handbook, recommends disfellowshipping. Mm-hmm. But having disfellowshipped the person, you then give them special attention. Mm-hmm. You show them compassion. Mm-hmm. You draw near to them mm-hmm. to help them come to a, a place of repentance. Right. And I'll never forget, the church decided not to disfellowship her because they felt that that would be you know, too much for her to bear. Hmm. But then I noticed that after that, people stayed away from her. No one was mean to her. No one went out of their way to condemn her. But rather like Job's first set of daughters, she was invited to church, but she was never really included. Hmm. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, Carl, invite her to go hiking after church. So my wife and I invited her to go hiking with us after church. Now, she was already in a state of repentance. Right. It was pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. At this point, she needed to know that she could be back in yeah. the group. And that's the duty of the Christian in that our efforts right. should be remedial. It's, we're, not, we're not just going out, oh, well, you know, you've done this, therefore, you know, I need to give you, you know, six months of isolation before, you know, you can be accepted. A is purely it, is it forensic. Yeah, a purely forensic approach will never bring about the result God wants. Right. There is a punishment, there is a disfellowshipping, which I think is significant, mm-hmm. but the real emphasis should be upon including that person and, and letting them know that you love them. And I'll never forget, we finished the hike and she was just overjoyed. Wow. She was absolutely in heaven, as it were, because the fact that we'd asked her to do that meant that she was again back in the church. Mm. Now, I can I hate to say this, but it's very easy for a church like that to include her but never actually really include her. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think one reason we do that 
is that we don't put ourselves in that person's place. If I were her, what would I need? Mm. But see, Job never had to do that with his daughters. He never had to empathize with them because, you know, he had done what he thought was appropriate. But once he suffered, that was the spark. Now he sees every other human being in a new dimension. Mm -hmm. He's incredibly sensitive to suffering in other people because he's experienced it. In other words, he can never look at anyone else in the same way again because now suffering defines him. Suffering's changed him. Irrevocably. Well, if suffering then is the spark that has prompted Job to treat his daughters differently... Mm then what should suffering do for us? Those who would identify with God's purpose are going to do all they can to ameliorate suffering. Whether that's on the physical level, the medical level, the psychological level, in all aspects of of life, we ameliorate suffering in the name of of God. And, And what you can do is that you, weak as you are, you can show pity to Satan's victims. That's the calling of this book. And that's what Job does. It may seem a little bit mundane, but he gives those daughters inheritances. And in the moment he does that, he's showing pity. Empathy expressed through compassion and not just, oh, I hope you feel better and I'm praying for you, but also I'm going to actually do something to make your life better. So empathy is is really important Mm. for Christian fellowship. How can we love each other? How can I love a person who's suffering if I've never suffered? Mm -hmm. Now, for many of us, we have suffered because we've sinned and we've suffered the consequences. Jesus, however, never sinned, but suffered all the negative consequences so that he could empathize with me. So Jesus is empathizing with your suffering, even if it's deserved right now. He's not condoning my sin, but he's showing pity for my human suffering. Yeah. And that's a really important aspect of the gospel Mm -hmm. that we see all throughout Christ's life. He's empathizing with people who are lost, even though he himself has never sinned, but he has suffered. Let him hear. And you just heard our latest show. If you'd like to hear more or harken back to a previous episode, you can find us at whythedidthat.org. Please also subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on your favorite social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at whythedidthat. And this show was produced by the great and marvelous Christian Freed. Finally, we want to thank uh, Weimar Institute, the media department, and especially Teresa Costello for help making this possible. Once again, I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That.